Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast. I'm Mariah. And I'm Aaron. And before we jump in today, we just wanted to remind you all that we are so appreciative of all the support that we've had from the brain injury community and are so excited about the progress made this year with the podcast. If you are looking for a way to support us, one of the best ways to do that is to jump on to whatever your podcast platform is, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever, and give us a review, either some stars or something in writing, but if you're feeling what we're doing and want to support and are looking for a way, that's a great way to do it. Erin and I have made this our side project. We do have full-time jobs. It is a, you know, something we do in our spare time. And we so appreciate that you spend some time with us during our spare time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Like we've just been so like I've been completely like shattered as to how you guys have like reached out and supported us and all the Instagram and the messages that we get. It's so heartwarming. Like we literally share those back and forth and I've (laughs) cried. You guys should see our text messages. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you need to pick me up today. Look at this. (laughs) So it's really awesome. Thank you to those of you who have reached out directly to say that what we've been doing has meant something to you. Because honestly, that is really what keeps us going. So. Thanks, y'all. Yeah. And make sure you check out our website, too. Um, I'm going to tout Mariah a little bit. Like, she's a web designer, and it is gorgeous. Not only is it just pretty to look at, but we have a lot of great resources on there. So um, make sure to check out www.makingheadwaypodcast.com. And now I know you weren't coming here for a commercial and I promise you this isn't a regular thing, but today we are fortunate to have um, our friends from My Brain Injured Friends. That's a podcast, uh, two friends just like us that also both had strokes and they were lucky enough to have, they actually had their strokes 10 weeks apart from one another and were- Right. I mean, can you imagine that? Like that sucks, but it's also so nice that they had each other to support each other and get through. So today we have Beate, who had an ischemic stroke, and Alexandra, who had a hemorrhagic stroke. And um, after the episode, if you want to hear more about them, make sure to check out their podcast. On It's called My Brain Injured Friends on Spotify, Apple, and Anchor. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, ladies. So nice to meet you. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You as well. You as well. It's always nice. Like you picture people, you know, when you're listening to their podcast and you picture what they might look like and, you know, who they are as people. And you're always like so presently surprised when you actually get to meet them and see the sparkle in your eyes. So true. <laughs> Thank you. I know that's really corny, but I'm feeling corny today. <laughs> You do, you, Erin. Right. (laughs) So how about, uh, Alexandra, do you mind starting with giving us just a little insight into your story? Sure. I'd love to. Actually, the coming month, February, is going to be my stroke anniversary of three years. Congratulations. Uh, Yeah. So uh, whenever (laughs) that date is coming close, I'm getting like all the feelings and um, so, and, and coincidentally this year in the day that I had my stroke three years ago, we're going to be moving to a new house. 
So I think it's going to all, you know, be a little bit of uh, thinking about this and then thinking about that and how to move and how to everything. And so, uh, yeah, three years ago, almost three years ago, I had uh, a stroke, hemorrhagic stroke was due to an AVM. That's a malformation in the brain that I didn't know I had. So I never really had any kind of headaches or no kind of symptoms that would say, hey, maybe something's wrong. So just one day after work, I started getting uh, very sick. We didn't know what was going on. Later on in the evening, we called an ambulance. And, you know, when they took me to the hospital, they did an MRI. And then they, they saw that I was having like a hemorrhagic stroke. And later on, they uh, did more tests. So they found out that I had this brain malformation. So luckily, I don't remember anything about that week. I say luckily because I really think it would be an additional trauma. My husband, uh, he, w- he did tell me this story like over and over again. So I do feel like I know it. But he was also saying that I said like, hey, I'm having like the worst headache in my life. So I think I, I wouldn't want to remember like the pain. Maybe perhaps it was really painful. So I'm in a way happy that I don't <laughs> remember it. Was yours a subarachnoid bleed? No, it was, it was? Uh, intraventricular. Mm. So uh, very deep in the brain. And they couldn't do anything. So they said, we, we can't do anything. We have to wait for the blood to absorb, reabsorb. And then we can think of treatment plans, like to remove this malformation that, was, that caused the bleed. So sometimes you can't do much about it. But luckily, mine was located still in, a, in an area where they could operate it. So I had a surgery a month after to remove it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah. And then after that, it all started going, uh, more, more crazy, I would say, cause I thought, you know, that I'm just gonna go over the surgery and just be back to normal. <laughs> so a month after I was like, oh, I'm going to go back to work now. And, uh, I just went back and I thought I can just take my life where it was and, and run with it. So I tried, I really tried, I did my best and it was not possible. Like every day I was coming back home shattered and crying and panic attacks. And Mm. so, you know, it it took a Mm. while till I realized that, Hey, I'm, I'm not doing something's something's wrong, but yeah, I, I, at some point then figured out, Hey, something's going wrong. And I, I started then doing a recovery at the rehabilitation center. Yeah. It's been a roller coaster. So Alexander, did you have any physical symptoms or was it all more cognitive? No, mental? exactly. It was more cognitive. And I think except a little bit small issues with my vision that I sometimes had like blurred uh, vision, but not always. And uh, besides that, only the cognitive part. So I didn't really realize them until I had to put them in practice, like at work, because I was working a very high paced job for a, a global IT uh, sales company. So I only realized when I was back at work that actually I can't do this. And because, you know, as you all probably know, when you have a brain injury, the first thing is they send you to uh, rehabilitation. Uh, But I went for an intake meeting and they told me we are fully booked. We can't start until like in three months from now. (laughs) Yeah. What? Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. So I it because of summer holidays or something? I don't know. I don't know. I really, I, in that moment, you know, if I look back, I would now think like, why are you doing this? But then I thought, you know, maybe this is just how things go. So I said, yeah, okay, then I'll go back to work because I'm not going to wait three months. 
And obviously, I didn't know that I have these problems. So uh, I was just uh, calling at work to say, I'm going to come back. So in a few weeks, I'm (laughs) just back. (laughs) So it was all a bit of a mush. But yeah, when I realized it's too much, then was also the time kind of in the three months or so later that the rehabilitation center also called me to say, okay, you can come in now. (laughs) So I was like... Yeah, it was a bit um, crazy, but uh, and, and and I realized later that this is a story and a recovery story that is never actually going to be finished. So now to uh, almost three years uh, on the journey, I know that, yeah, this problem is probably going to be for my full whole life. But uh, at, back at that time, I thought it's just something temporarily for a month or two and that's it. And I don't know, like we had just spoken with Vanessa Woodburn, who I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with, but she uh, wrote a book, Bounce Back, Reclaiming Your Life After Concussion. And I know, you know, it's it's so focused on concussion, but her lessons can go to any brain injury. Mm. And so anyway, long story short, she talks about how in your story, you're constantly revising because there really isn't an ending but our brain wants to give it an ending because that feels safe. That's what you know. You know, you just want to be like, this is what happened and this was the outcome and now I'm done. Mm. And it's, it's funny. It's not like that. Like I had the, I had the same experience. Like as soon as I had my hemorrhagic, it wasn't a stroke. It was a hemorrhage. I didn't have stroke symptoms, but they, you know, I immediately was telling people, Oh yeah, I'll be back at work. Like give me two weeks. I'll Mm. be there. It was four months before I went back to work, but your body just wants that. It, it takes some time to accept, you know, and really understand that you're not maybe the person you once were. I, I did the same thing, Alexandra. I was, I gave myself three months, but I still was not ready to be back at work when I was back at work. And it was pretty clear to plenty of other people, but I'm stubborn and was like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And it really wasn't that fine. <laughs> so we are so. here, four women actually did the same thing because Beata did the same thing too. So, <laughs> you yeah, did. And like... <laughs> That's a good segue. Let's, Abiate, tell us about your story. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, like we already mentioned, mine and Alexandra was so close to one another. But just after her stroke, um, I actually got married and she couldn't attend the wedding, of course. It was in South Africa and I met Alexandra in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. So she was supposed to fly out with her husband. So I got married and then seven weeks after we got married, it was a Sunday morning. My husband and I we were in bed, drinking coffee, eating breakfast on a, like a typical, very lazy Sunday morning. And he went down to go clean up the kitchen and so forth. And I took a shower and right after the shower, I almost felt lightheaded, which is not a strange feeling for me because I usually have low blood pressure. So I thought like, mm, just stand still for a second and it'll go away. And very quickly, and it was very apparent that it was not going away. And I was completely losing balance. So there was already a very clear physical fallout um, of losing control of my body, I'd say. So I sat down with the towel still around me on the side of the bath and my vision was already being distorted. I looked at the floor and it seemed as though the bathroom floor was made out of waves about a meter high. I don't know how high is that in inches, but I said as high as a table, for instance. And Mm. I saw these huge waves on the floor. So everything was completely distorted around me. 
And I didn't realize, but I was getting paralyzed in my upper half of my body as well. So I couldn't sit up straight anymore. And I was kind of collapsing inside of the sink right next to the bath. And I called my husband's name once and he answered like, yes, yeah. And because I didn't say anything else, he probably thought like, oh, she wasn't thought or you know, whatever. And I told myself, Beata, you have to now do something. You have to yell his name again because something's up. And so I yelled his name and he came running up and he's like, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, but I have no, and luckily I could speak because most or some stroke victims can't even, you know, speak or the words are all jumbled up into sounds. And luckily I could explain. So in slow, like in a slow voice, I told him like, I don't know what's going on. And And he told me, get up. And I said, I can't. So he tried to like help me up on my shoulders and see if I could walk, but I completely collapsed again. So he picked me up and carried me to the bed. And at that point, it was very apparent that something big is wrong. And my husband is not a a doctor himself or in the medical field, but luckily his family is. And he is always very well informed and they talk a lot. So I can't remember exactly what he did, but he did a couple of things and he realized I was having a stroke which was fantastic that he knew what was going on so he could act fast. So he phoned our GP and she's also, luckily, she helps out over the weekends and some of her times at the emergency room. So he phoned her on her cell phone and luckily she's also kind of a family friend and she was like, bring her in immediately. And at that point I was losing consciousness and didn't know what was going on. And I was completely paralyzed. So I couldn't even like lift my bum for him to like put on my underwear even, or get, you know, dress me in a kind of way. And here is wet and I'm crying and I was feeling sick. So I got sick next to the bed and it was just chaos. So he ran out of the house with me, carrying me down the stairs and not locking anything up and just put me in the backseat of the car. And that's basically the last memory I have of that day. So at the hospital, they first do an MRI, but to confirm that it is an ischemic stroke, a blood clot, because if they administer the medicine that they gave me to someone like Alexandra, obviously they're going to cause the bleeding to get worse. So they have to administer the correct medicine to dissolve the clot, which they successfully did within, I think it's the two hour mark is usually the important mark for a stroke. If you kind of get help, medical assistance within two hours, they say you have a very good chance of, you know, recovering to a great extent. And they luckily did that. But the rest of the day is very blurry. And then I'd say the first month or at least first two weeks was very much focused within the physical. So standing up, sitting down, you know, taking small steps, getting control of like brushing my teeth and things like that. But I mean, the fine motor skills took really, really long. I'd say my handwriting was only the same after nine months. So and my right side was impacted, which is also my dominant side. So like the fine motor skills took a really long time and I already had immediate visual fallout. So which means I'm completely blind in both eyes on the right hand side which is obviously very difficult because it makes reading very hard because you read from left to right. And yeah, obviously driving, I had to go through disability driving school, but that's like part of, I suppose, all of the fallouts and the, the figuring out of you know, your life after a brain injury. But that's basically what happened to me in short. <laughs> How long, Beate, was it before you tried to return to work? 
Oh my goodness. So my neurologist booked me all for a month initially. And Alexandra and I am so similar. And that's also why we found so much, I'd say like understanding from one another, because I really should have taken more time off than a month. But I felt like my neurologist said a month, I have to be back in a month. Like that's kind of what's expected of me. This is, he knows what he's doing. He's the, you know, specialist. So, and I didn't feel brave enough to tell him like, I'm not feeling okay, or that this is not normal, because how do you know what normal is after a brain injury? Is this how other patients feel? Is it not how other patients feel? And again, because it's an invisible disability, working in a strict corporate environment, people had no idea what to expect, had no idea how to assist me. And even if I tried to explain certain things to them, it was difficult. And it's also you're kind of vulnerable because you're also figuring out like also what's going on. So you don't really have the language or the knowledge to explain to other people who has no idea of the medical field or an injury, brain injury to how to assist me if I'm still figuring out me, <laughs> if you get what I'm saying. So it I was totally know crazy. you can't see, you know, you guys can see me here like, yes, yes, mm. shaking my head. <laughs> but um, for our listeners, like this so relates and I'm sure it relates to a lot of people. Mm. Like you, like you said so eloquently, we don't have the words to express what it's like because we're new. We don't know what a brain injury is like. Mm -mm. And we measure ourselves up against others when you can't do that with a brain injury. I think that's a, a really good point because, you know, it is invisible. People expect that because you look fine, you are fine. We've all, um, how many times have we repeated that on this show? But also the expectation that you can communicate what's going on to other people is kind of unreasonable given that you're still figuring it out. Like I think about, especially the three months after my accident, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I knew I didn't feel right. But if you had said like, what exactly is going on? I would not have been able to say it. Honestly, I, I wouldn't have been able to put a finger on exactly what my problems were. And I think that's part of why after my brain injury, I had, you know, visiting nurses and I had occupational therapy, but mm. they had no idea what my baseline was. So when I took the test, they were like, oh, you're fine. You're performing really well. And then they sort of left me and it's no fault to them. There's really not a great way to <laughs> to change that, that I can think of. But so once those people disappeared, I was just left feeling like, well, I'm definitely not right, but I have nothing. I have no support from a medical professional right now and I'm not sure how to fix it. So I'm mm. just going to keep trudging through it. <laughs> mm. And you don't know what to ask for. Mm. Yeah. Like that's where I'm at right now. Like I don't, I know it's not right, but I'm not sure what I'm asking for. Mm. So to reach out and ask for help, like what am I asking for help with? <laughs> it's yeah. hard to figure out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And did, did either of you have neuropsychological testing to help yeah. like, figure out where the deficits were? Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was quite an experience because like I said, I went back to work. I, fig- I found out I can't do stuff. I didn't understand why the stuff that I'm doing now is not really different to what I was doing before. Why isn't it working anymore? So then when I started at the rehabilitation center they said okay let's do a neuropsychological test and I said okay I don't know what it is but okay (laughs) so this is 
test of few hours uh, I, I took a lot of breaks in between because I couldn't concentrate I tried to do my best but it was so consuming and so on all levels and then when I got the result they said well with your age and education we see that you're actually under quite a lot of these uh, tests so then I was like what do you mean and what does that mean and, and they explained to me that yeah well we expect that someone of your age with your education would do would be here and but then you are here they were showing me some kind of graph so then i took the results home and looked over it with my husband and we were like so maybe these things are explaining why i'm not able to like for example really concentrate at work or or uh, pay attention to multiple things at the same time or really just have the energy to finish a working day mm -hmm. uh, so in that sense it really did help because it gave me an answer to my questions of why am I not uh, able to do things as I did before? Then I saw like, okay, it seems like I have some deficits with like attention, memory, and uh, concentration. And it gave, to me, it gave like an answer. I know that some people say, oh, um, these tests didn't really help me. But for me, they were really a blessing in disguise because then I thought, I saw them and I, I knew, okay, this makes sense now. Yeah, the fallouts are real, a kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I can imagine the, the feeling of relief, honestly, at least for my personality, being able to explain some of the, the reasons behind that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. What mm -hmm. did they do with those results or what did you do with those results besides just recognizing what's different? Well, they actually helped a lot in the end uh, because I could explain at work, you know, uh, to the managers and things that things are actually from a medical standpoint, not the same. And then, you know, we worked on figuring out if there is still something that I can do inside of the company, like with the current deficits that were mentioned in that test. So uh, in the end, we worked out on a, on a, with the company on less hours for a different kind of job, but a job that has, uh, does not require me to, you know, multitask a lot or to concentrate for long periods of time. So right now I'm working for like much less hours and for a different uh, job, but inside the same company. So in that sense, th this test really helped me. Uh, yeah, I think without it, I wouldn't have been able to explain to like my managers and just people in the company, like what's going wrong and that is actually a, a medical thing and not just because in the beginning I tried as well before the test and my manager was saying, but I also have very bad memory. What do you mean? But I also cannot mm -hmm. concentrate for a long time. Uh, so, so oh, you all get tired. <laughs> yeah. So, mm -hmm. so before it, they didn't really understand. And after, maybe they still don't understand, but at least they think, okay, you know, it is medically proven that actually she should be like this, but she's actually not. So, yeah, it kind of puts a um, picture onto. You know, everyone says you look fine, mm -hmm. but it gives you a definition of no, no, it's not. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, tell me, I don't know if you guys experience this, but at work, I get all the time, you know, people are so well-meaning. You know, I work at a hospital, like I work with caregivers and they all want to help me and they all love me, but they always ask, how are you feeling? And then I'll say, well, I'm really tired. And you get the, well, I'm tired too, or, well, I can't focus. Well, I've been having trouble too. And that's fine. They're just trying to commiserate and empathize. But then I get the, will you ever be better? Mm. And that... <sighs> It for me, like I've been trying, I'm trying to get better and I know they mean that well, but 
I may never be exactly the same. It's almost an unfair question. And Mm -hmm. um, the timing of this is interesting because something that has come up in conversation with a couple of listeners who have reached out is, you know, like the comparison of where you are now to where you, the person you were before your brain injury and the standard you set for yourself, you know, who you want to be, the goals you set for yourself and wondering whether those goals can be the same after a brain injury and wondering if you will get entirely better and you will feel like you were before the accident or whether there will always be things that you have to deal with. And there's no real answer to that question. Mm. It's kind of unanswerable. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I heard that question quite a lot as well. And uh, it, 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 uh, in some points seems a little bit, mean to me that somebody's gonna ask me like when are you gonna be a hundred percent again like mm-hmm. and it, i mean i'm living in the netherlands which means the the people here are very direct it's just a cultural thing so they actually ask you like that like when are you gonna be a hundred percent like it, and that is like such a question like well i don't even know <laughs> what is a hundred percent like I, i'm probably not gonna be a hundred percent that you expect so yeah yeah. How am I supposed to answer that question? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me consult yeah. my crystal ball and I'll yes. tell you. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Or the one I've gotten also is, you know, I'll say, say, I'll make jokes because if you can't joke about having had a brain injury, then life is a lot tougher. But I'll, I'll joke about, you know, having forgotten something and I'll say, oh, brain injury, just a moment. And mm. people will be like, well, you can't, you're, you're better. You can't really say that it's still a brain injury thing. And that amazes me that people can just sort of spout that out because who is anyone else to say what my brain is doing? (laughs) Um, And if I feel like it was a brain injury moment, I promise you it was probably a brain injury moment. I do have them still this many years later. But yeah, that expectation that, you know, years have passed. So you're just the way you were. Mm. It's a strange one to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all about accepting yourself. And that's, I haven't figured out a way to tell other people this when they ask me the question, but it's almost like I've embraced who I am now. I don't know. Like, is, mm. is your life going to change? I don't know. <laughs> is my life going to change? I don't know. Like um, for now, yeah. this is who I am. I think from ahead, a, kind of a, another point of, uh, or another way that I found it really tough is I am religious and I come from a very, I would say, religious community. And there was another thing where people would say, which I complete, which I believe is complete utter nonsense. But if you just believe your blindness will go away, or if you just this, you know, it is going to mm-hmm. disappear. And for such a long time in the mornings, I would wake up not believing that exact sentence, but almost like wishing and praying, thinking like maybe today if I open my eyes, you know, I won't be blind. And I'd wake up lying in my bed and I'd be like, okay, like before I open my eyes, like imagine, imagine seeing everything again. And I would slowly open my eyes and tears would like, I almost feel emotional just saying it, but just running down my cheeks. And thinking, okay, well, today is not the day. Well, and maybe tomorrow again. And the thing is, you can't, I told myself, you can't wake up every day trying and wishing a certain life that you're not going to have. And that is a great part of my recovery journey is also getting to a point saying like, I'm blind. 
to, to some extent and that's okay and i'm gonna like work around it and i'm gonna get a smart car you know with lots of beeping noises and i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna you know make sure that i have the same parking bay in every single mall or parking lot i'm supposed to park in to help me remember where i parked and it's okay like that's just my thing now and i have to kind of accept it for myself and you know that that is that is okay for me and I'm going to make my life wonderful again, even with all of the things that I've now lost, you know? Yeah. Mm. Okay. So mm. I'm also religious and to our listeners, we respect whatever yes. your beliefs are, whatever they may be, but I'm also religious and you're the first person I've ever encountered to talk to about a brain injury and what that meant for your sort of religious perspective. But I had a similar struggle after my accident. My mine was, why would a God do this to me? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you ever had moments like that, but it was a real struggle is if, you know, if there's a God, why, why would he wish this upon me? Mm. Um, I'm a pretty good person. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think I do too much wrong in my life. I, I'm, I'm pretty good, but yeah, but I, I also, I mean, therapy really was the thing that yes. brought that around for me was, you know, Aaron and I were also having somewhat of a religious conversation the other day. Yeah, we but were. Like, <laughs> if there's a God, and my, how, what, who, who are we to think that our human pea brains could even understand what God is? And and also for me, it was kind of like it doesn't really matter whether you know God sent this to me or if it just happened. Mm -hmm. It actually like I I went through this weird cycle with my faith where I let go of it completely because I was angry at what had happened to me, that it had been allowed to happen to me, that I, you know, have lived a pretty good life. You know, I pay it forward as much as I can. And still, it doesn't matter how much good you put out into the universe, the universe doesn't always send it back. And then after I let go of my faith, it was almost like it came back to me because with time, I realized for me, at least, that it doesn't really matter whether it was sent to me, whether it was on purpose or not, but I'm such a strong person because of it. And I'm a better person because of it. And I'm far more empathetic and understanding of others because of it yes. and far more kind to myself because of it. Mm, absolutely. But it was a long road. <laughs> yeah. And therapy, I must say, was absolute key to this whole thing. Cause you needed, I needed someone almost my therapy is a non-religious therapy. I mean, it doesn't happen at a church as a tra trained you know, psychologist. And yeah. we look at things not from necessarily a religious point of view. It's just like you look at life and what you're experiencing and what you're going through. So it wasn't, I almost needed someone to be outside of the religious community to kind of just look mm -hmm. at it for what it is. And um, yeah, it's, um, I found great, great, great help through therapy and the acceptance part of this whole journey and working around it. And even today still, you know, kind of living with it and living in, in all different types of, I want to say departments of one's life and experiencing new things that you never thought you would have experienced. Like, you know, you have to almost go through that experience again of, okay, oh yeah, I have, a, it's, it's a bit more difficult for me to do a new, this new thing, whatever it is. Is it a sport? Is it driving on the wrong side of the, of the road if you're in a different country or whatever it is? And you have to go through that struggle again and remind yourself, okay, I am different. It's okay. We're going to get through it like in this kind of a way. And yeah, it's just, 
therapy has been great for me. Wonderful. Yes. Oh my gosh. Therapy. Me too. I, I, my husband actually laughs at me because he tells me I recommend therapy to every yes. person I talk to. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> but it's changed my life. I mean, the brain injury and the therapy and they are, they go hand in hand for me. And if you think about it, it makes sense that, you know, you take religion out of it. It, it makes sense that a brain injury rocks every part of your world. Exactly. So of course you're going to start questioning foundational beliefs and values because everything shifts. Um, mm -hmm. So there's almost, I think for a lot of us, a reassessment of where we are and what's important and, you know, religious or not, you, you often look at, you know, your values. Absolutely. So, yeah. so a brain injury is a good reminder and maybe, you know, I would not recommend getting a brain injury so you can have this reminder, take our words for it. <laughs> But it's almost a good reminder in the fact that we are created to flex. Our, our minds and our brains are elastic, but we are brought up in such a way that, you know, you raise your hand to ask a question, you follow this rule and then you'll succeed. You do this right and then you get a promotion. And it's not actually that rigid. And having a brain injury, I think, reminds you that you actually have flexibility in your life. You can mm. move around. And then the other piece where you guys are talking about religion, I grew up in a very strict religious world, too. And I'm finding even that, like, if God is truly love, he's going to love people no matter where they are. Mm. And again, listeners, please don't, you know, we're not preaching, but I'm just trying to make a point that if God can love you wherever you are, you can love yourself wherever you are. And praying hard for a miracle, like maybe the miracle is what you're going through. Maybe it's not wishing it away. Maybe you're in this spot to learn something monumental. I'm and wiggling my head with excitement know, right? about this because I totally agree. I think, yes. you know, one of the things that I struggled with immediately after in therapy was, you know, why did this happen? I've talked about this before. Well, you can't say why it happened days or months after a brain injury. And I think it changes every day that passes. You know, you get to define why it happened. You are the one who sees how it's changed your life. And I think, you know, like someday when we're 80 or 90, you know, knock on wood, I think the, the perspective will mean that it's a really long list of why we think it happened to us and what we made of it and the good that did come of it. But, you know, Erin and I have said so many times, we wouldn't take it back. You know, I feel like we both have learned a lot along the way. And I, I truly do think I'm a better person for it. Me too. And it just emphasizes that point of our stories don't have an end. I mean, they have an end if you die, but otherwise they don't have an end. You're completely, you're recreating it the whole time and learning something new and getting a new lesson. And it's just, it's, I think it's a nice way to live because then you don't feel stuck. Mm -hmm. Living in a rigid world is so boring. <laughs> so route. I do like routine though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does. And for brain injury survivors, we need our routines. Oh, like yes. we can't be too flexy, <laughs> but just giving yourself that kind of grace and ability to be able to be with yourself where you are. And, oh, you know, yeah, people at work are going to ask, but do we really need like a solid explanation if you're not trying to make a disability case or something? Like mm -hmm. sometimes it just has to be, I am what I am right now and I can't explain it. And deal with it. Yep. <laughs> yep. 
So, Alexandra, we've kind of uh, gone off on a tangent and we've left you behind here. (laughs) What do you have any lessons that you've really learned from your Um, I think so quite a lot. And I think the most important one is realizing that this is a lifetime uh, process like we just talked about now that it's not going to end tomorrow. It's not going to end next month. It's just version 2.0 of me kind of yes. <laughs> and now i'm working with this version so i'm i'm going to see where i get uh where i get with it and that's kind of i think one of my my biggest lessons but also in the same time i realized unfortunately that some friends and family won't will just not understand you regardless you know of uh, how close you are or used to be there's just these people that were in your life but are just not meant to go forward with you on this journey so i did have like quite some good friends that i actually am not friends with anymore just because of this yeah lack of understanding really about the injury and i feel like i don't have time for this kind of people in my life so i've also learned kind of to be more picky with who stays in in my life and who has to go sort of so that is a good thing because i used to be too um yeah, indulgent, I guess is the word. But now I'm more like, I don't have even the mental capacity to, to deal with this. So, you know, <laughs> I, I let go of things and people much easier now. That's one of the things I'm grateful I learned. There's a lot of things actually, and I keep learning every day, but these are like the main things. And I think that starting a podcast with Beata was also one of the biggest things that happened since the three years and that i'm also the most grateful that uh, it took that turn it just for me yeah it gave me a sense of purpose so to speak in a way and also uh, felt i felt like there's a community there actually who have been through this as well i'm not alone i'm not crazy there's plenty of people going through the same so every time we were getting like messages or voice messages or emails about hey i went through this and this happened i thought wow, you see, these people have so much in common with us. I yeah. think that's one of your podcast episodes that I connected the most with was, I can't remember, I think it was like the third or the fourth one, but you both talked about the change in friendship dynamics because of your brain injuries. And I've seen that happen a little too. And even with close family, it's not that they don't love me. I think it's so many of them don't think I want to talk about it. I don't know if you've experienced this. So they won't mention it or they'll just like keep it at arm's length because they don't, they feel like it's a sensitive subject. But here I am sitting on a podcast talking about it every week. I am totally fine with anybody asking me any question about it. And honestly, that makes things so much better. If you want to know, just ask me. But that sort of distance has caused some relationships to change. And it's uh, surprised me. A lot, mm-hmm. but it was really nice to hear your episode about that because I was like, "Oh, this isn't this is a more universal thing." It's, and I'm I'm with you on the sort of letting go of some relationship piece of this because you know I'm a a people pleaser and I have always striven stri- strove. What's the past tense of strive? I strive to strive. I strived to uh, strived. Okay, that makes sense. I think sense. it's strive. Um, <laughs> not my first language, people. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> but you would. <laughs> but um, but I strive to like keep people connected, and I strive to make people happy with me. And so, realizing that I only have so much capacity or time in my life for people, that 
time needs to get spent with the important people and the people who understand. And I also agree with you about finding people within this community. And the podcast has really facilitated that. The number of people who really do understand what what you're going through. And I think we're seeing it right here as the four of us chat. It's su- it's such a relief to be able to talk to people who you don't have to work to explain this stuff to. Absolutely. So, yeah. How's the journey been for you guys? Just having to constantly revisit your injury because we talk about it every week or I don't know how frequent you guys did episodes, but yeah. How's that been for you? Because I know I've struggled a little bit. Very yeah. good question. So I think since Alexandra and myself, we were we chat a lot. I'd say like every two weeks or so, we have at least an hour long video call. And living in literally opposites in its opposite ends of the world, I feel very close to her. And like this conversation as well, it's so lovely to speak to people who just get what you're saying and you don't ha- have any effort of explaining a situation. I'll just kind of paint the picture of, you know, the barbecue or the party. And she's like, oh my gosh, really? Oh my goodness, how did you deal with that music? Or, you know, there's a live band. Are you crazy? Yes. You know? She immediately. I'm cringing because it sounds overwhelming just you uh-huh. saying that. And she already, with Without being there, she like picks up on all of these like, you know, bits of information that I put out there and she sees all the kind of hazards, if I can call it that. So we're having one of those types of conversations and she's telling me about one of her experiences. And that's kind of how the podcast, you know, idea of a podcast came about. And I said, it'll actually be wonderful if somebody could listen into our conversation right now and we don't have to hide away our uncomfortableness or we want to be good guests and kind of accommodate, you know, our hosts and, you know, say like, oh, no, thank you. Wonderful. You know, music's perfect. Love the band, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Or, And they could actually just kind of be a fly on the wall and like listen to our conversations because I think potentially it could be helpful to other people just hearing us saying our true emotions out loud and kind of not protecting other people's feelings, even if I can call it that. And then we kind of continue the conversation and we said, okay, well, let's maybe like make a video or should we make a, should we start a podcast? And anyway, that's how it came about. And I think we both had different ideas and Alexandra can probably share her point of view as well. But I thought it would be great for me to kind of speak about brain injury without having to feel I need to kind of hold back you know, and kind of just give a true, honest review on what it's like, (laughs) if I can call Mm -hmm. it that. And it was wonderful. And I loved doing it. But I definitely realized it's much harder than what I thought it's going to be. I thought it's going to be like a great like outlet every like, say, second week, for example, to speak about it and kind of get everything out in the open and not hide it away or feel like I have to hide it. But it was so extremely emotional for me and I felt it to be extremely tough. And sometimes I still even do, but I don't, if anyone is listening, that's not a discouragement to come and ask me about it because that is something I really appreciate, especially in one-on-one conversations. If someone asks me something about my life, I love to share and I find it extremely thoughtful of someone to ask and kind of ask me about my experience. But speaking about it and hearing everybody else's stories so often and regularly, it really was very 
that's the word for it. Like it was heavy, like an emotional heaviness. And I actually asked Alexandra, like after season one, I wanted to like put a pause bot- button on it and it could be a stop button completely. I'm not sure. So we're, we are done with season one and we stopped for now. And I kind of am leaving it there. And maybe Alexandra will continue the podcast by herself or with someone else. But I found it to be actually quite hard to speak about it as often as on, to every second week, you know, almost to an audience and not just Alexandra being my friend and we can just chat about it, you know, and like share our small mm. intimate details with one another. Yeah. You kind of, you know, all of these, all of our stories require some amount of trauma. You know, they've put you through mm. some amount of trauma and it, it can be very hard to not connect to that trauma when it's something that you can relate with. So mm. it's almost like re-traumatizing yourself sometimes hearing it. And again, just like you, Beate, I love talking about this and I love mm. having an outlet, you know, for the most part, this really has been completely cathartic. But it also is a reminder of, you know, a constant reminder of what the worst times were like, because you're trying to come up with an episode to talk about and to move on. So I think, you know, for me, just recognizing that I don't need to be stuck in it, that I can talk about it without having to live it. Um, mm. You know, they're two different things that that's been helpful. And it's almost, it's what you do as a nurse too. Like you can care for someone without having to live their experience. I take my hat off to people who can more easily do that. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. I really, it's Mm -hmm. really hard. And I take my hat off to, to so many individuals like you three. (laughs) It is hard. I, I obviously Aaron and I have chatted about this quite a bit, but so we started our podcast and I was just just before the two year anniversary of my brain injury and a lot of time had passed. So a lot of change and healing had happened. And then I went through this funny stage in the early weeks slash months of making headway, having started where I felt like I regressed a little bit Mm. um, because I was not only did it force me to revisit my own trauma, but also re piece the story together because I was in a very different place and realizing that my memory of it wasn't really the way it went down. So my poor husband, I was constantly asking him questions like, how did this happen? How did this happen? Because like you guys, I just don't have a lot of memory of the the weeks after. So I was redefining that story for myself. And I found myself in the muck a little bit for a little bit there, realizing that I needed to reprocess some things. Mm -hmm. And then struggling with some of it getting me down because like Aaron said, there is trauma in every brain injury story. And some of our interviews do get really heavy. And so there have been interviews where, you know, we've finished and I've just had to like take some space because people have been through so much. And, but what I realized was I own the brain injury. The brain injury does not own me. Mm. And that's sort of been my philosophy moving forward is this is me paying it forward and making something of that brain injury and making sure that it's not my story or, you know, like it doesn't tell my story. I tell my story. I like that. We help tell the story. So Beata, maybe that convinces you to to do a second (laughs) season. (laughs) 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 No, but it's true. I, I feel the same like you, Mariah. I feel like this is kind of helping me own the brain injury and not letting it own me. 
and also yeah also very important what you said there a way to pay it forward like i felt i i felt like these episodes are helping a lot of people and through the feedback that we've had it's also just so important to survivors that they listen to other people going through the same thing like it was for myself also when i was getting these messages with hey i had this brain injury and i have the same and i felt felt like finally you know there's a community who's going through the same thing so yeah, for me, it's, it's been great just, just doing the podcast together with Beata. And of course, I, I would not recommend to anyone to get the brain injury. But if I have another friend with a brain injury, <laughs> they can be... get involved. Yay. Yeah. yeah, it helps. It really it does helps. help. And I think it's easy to think that there's not much of a brain injury community out there because it's invisible. So it's not obvious who's had one or who mm. hasn't. Yeah. But Weirdly, the pandemic has helped me realize that there truly is a brain injury community. Social media, which I'm not always a fan of, despite the fact that I work in marketing, has helped me connect with so many people that I, and I probably wouldn't have been open to that kind of social media or online connection pre-pandemic, but it's forced us to reevaluate the way we communicate with people and be more comfortable with video chat and online connections. And I am grateful for that or appreciative of the silver lining in that it's it's helped me connect with so many other brain injury folks mm. so absolutely those connections are kind of priceless you're right and just as a way of self-reflection too like hearing myself talk on a podcast has <laughs> been <laughs> like it's been really eye-opening in how I communicate because you don't really know how you do it until you hear yourself doing it and I realized a lot of the times I'm speaking to be heard. I'm not speaking with the intent of hearing what the other person has to say. Mm. Does that make any sense? That makes complete sense. Have you guys heard of the Yoga Girl podcast? No. Rachel Braden's podcast? Um, Only from you, Mariah. I haven't had a chance to listen yet. <laughs> it's a great podcast. So she's, I think she's originally from the Netherlands maybe Denmark. I can't remember, but she lives in Aruba now. Um, and she is a yogi and she has just an incredible online presence and has done a lot of good in the world. But her podcast is all about mindfulness and yoga and a lot of topics get covered. But her most recent episode was with a woman and I'm not going to remember her name, mm -hmm. but we'll put it in the show notes. And this woman was talking about the art of listening on the podcast. And so it's funny that you say that, Erin, because the timing of that is I literally I just listened to that last night. But I was I was thinking the same thing as I listened to this woman on a podcast talk about the importance of really giving someone respect in a conversation and not thinking of what you're going to say next, but listening to them and hearing what they're saying. And then formulating your own response. And I'm with you, Erin. I've always, I think, been like one step ahead trying to figure out what, what I'm going to say next. But the podcast has helped me step back a bit from that and try to really appreciate what's being said to me. Mm. That said, you do have to be on your toes a little bit on a podcast. <laughs> you don't <laughs> you want do. there to be dead air. <laughs> right. so. Except that we can edit that out. So maybe That's we should. True. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me, guys, like, what were your biggest surprises going through your stroke recovery that you think other people might relate to? Gosh, if, biggest? Yeah. Say that again, biggest? Like, so let me explain what I'm getting at. So mm -hmm. like for me with my hemorrhage, I never realized that cognitive fatigue was a thing. 
Mm -hmm. I've worked, you know, I'm a nurse. I work with strokes. I work with people that have similar issues and I never really understood what they were going through and how foggy and like convoluted everything gets inside because you're just so tired. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that it was a speech therapist of all things that would teach me like strategies to get through that. So I don't know. Did you guys encounter anything that was just kind of shocking and like this is something you can do about it? I'd say most things are kind of shocking afterwards. There's um, <laughs> yeah. so many categories or different departments even that I never thought I'll ever visit or I saw movement as a thing that is like fluid it's kind of just like as I'm now talking and explaining with my hand you kind of almost take it for granted to be expressive within your own body and how your brain is so connected to all different parts of your body like each little finger each limb each movement it's not just the work of your leg or your arm moving but it's also your brain and just because you have the limb doesn't mean you have the movement or you have the strength right mm. it's your brain that also needs to practice and exercise and do everything because I mean, before, let's say like two hours prior to the stroke and two hours after the stroke, it's not like I lost mus muscle definition, but my brain completely forgot how to do certain things. And it was the strangest kind of feeling to hold a pen. And one of the first, after being able to actually get out of bed and like be in the rehab center was to like hold a pen and like rewrite a paragraph and my speech therapist, or I think it was actually my OT, my occupational therapist, timed me. And like every second week, I would copy the same paragraph to see like how my writing improved and things like that. So, I mean, that was a big surprise, I'd say. Also, another big surprise was the amount of information you process visually because of my blindness. You don't realize how much your eyes help you place yourself, your own physical body within a space. It sounds so strange, but you're constantly aware of the things around you by using obviously your peripheral vision. And if you lose that, you kind of feel drunk. You feel completely disoriented. And I almost like, I felt like a little bit like Spider-Man, like kind of putting my hands and, you know, feet like almost against the wall to be like, okay, this is a solid piece of, you know, wall behind me. Like from this point, like let me quickly just orientate myself and like have a good look around before I start moving. And it takes me so much longer still now, still today in a new house or a new restaurant or a friend's apartment to kind of walk in and be like, okay, I'm orientating myself. This is the space I can move here. This is safe. Or if there's moving objects like kids or dogs, kind of managing that in between. So there's, I, I, I can like talk about this for hours. There are so many things. Yeah. Um, I, I remember I one thing you said, Beata, that shocked me at one point about when you went to a restaurant and then on your right, the waiter came. Can you tell about that maybe? I think you remember the story better than what I am currently, but that, um, <laughs> that you don't have the vision on your right side, right? Yeah. And then you were in the restaurant with your husband and he was somehow sitting to your left. 
and then a waiter came to the right and you Mm. didn't see him and then he just started speaking all of a sudden and you were like oh right yes but now i have kind of compensated for that so if i'm alone at a restaurant or in any public space even on a train or a bus or an airplane or whatever it is i mean not that we had many of that in 2020 but any case I would sit like next to a wall and make make sure that my blind area, if I don't want to constantly watch it, I kind of put like a solid object, like a wall there. So no one can surprise me or, you know, bump into me. So I don't have to constantly be on the lookout because people obviously assume you have peripheral vision. So they'll pass you a glass or they'll, you know, kind of lead the way, but you don't see them. So you just keep on walking in your own direction or a waiter would stand there. But if I now I'm in a public space, usually Michal, he will sit on my right hand side just to kind of be an extra layer of kind of protection or I don't have to constant be, constantly be aware or scanning that environment, especially if it's like a time of relaxation or you just want to chill at a restaurant you kind of don't want to it's not like actively driving and you have to you know move your eyes from left to right constantly to ensure that you're obviously safe on the road yeah <laughs> so that's be really tiring it is like, to always be looking in that right spot like Ugh, yeah it is it's and it's, be exhausting it's actually quite cool for anyone you know struggling with their vision after a um, brain injury you have to go and google a neuro optometrist they are amazing with that and they they teach you so many methods of of coping with blindness, semi-blindness, or wherever your blindness is located. So you kind of try and keep your physical self as well as your head still and only use your eyes as movement because if you kind of imagine it and you are standing up and you're kind of turning around like, you know, in circles, you're going to get dizzy and disoriented even if you're completely... um, you know, your your vision is not disrupted. So kind of turning your body and your head like left to right, left to right also, you know, creates even more chaos for yourself. So kind of keeping everything still and like using your eyes as by themselves, you know, moving your eyes from certain areas can help you orientate yourself. But that, you know, is a neurooptometrist can teach you how to do that and how to feel safe and cope in a new environment. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've talked to an occupational therapist and we've talked to vestibular rehab, but we have not talked to neurooptometry yet. And mm. that's something we should consider. Yeah, that is it's an amazing field. Amazing. I was so surprised and I was so extremely grateful to find someone like that. Mm. Mm. What about you, Alexandra? Did you have anything that surprised you in your, your journey? I think uh, there were plenty of things, of course, but the most uh, shocking one to say so is the amount of stuff that I was able to do before compared to the stuff that I'm able to do now. So that's still something that I'm constantly uh, thinking about just in, in, in normal day-to-day life. Like if I have to meet a friend or so, I, I now have to time it like, oh, I can stay maximum an hour or an hour and a half. Otherwise, it's going to be too much or if, if other friends then come and say hey can we also meet on this day i have to actually say no i can't do this it's just too much let's plan for another day and sometimes i feel like that was something i never thought about before like before i could have left home at you know 9 a.m and come back uh, anytime in the evening even at night and had a full day with maybe uh shopping museums uh friends dinners 
And now it's one or two things max, and then they have to really be timed. And that's, I think, the most shocking thing that I've had. And I'm still struggling with it because sometimes I do want to do more things. Like, for example, today there was, I met a friend in the morning and I knew that I had to do the podcast uh, with you guys tonight. And I had another friend who was saying, Can, do you guys want to come over? So I said, no, we can't do that as well. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, my two max limits. Yeah, exactly. I'm exactly. <laughs> so, you know, now I have to say yes to these people, no to those ones. And uh, I never had to do to deal with that before. So it is still shocking, even after two years. And of course, nobody understands it. If you explain it like why, yeah, people will be like, so what if you went to see a friend in the yeah. morning? And so what if you're doing a podcast? Like, you know, right. I it get tired you. too. <laughs> yeah, it teach, I get tired too. Yes. <laughs> All the time. It teaches you to stand by your limit, like to know your limit and to stand by it. Aaron and I have talked a lot about how having had a brain injury, it has affected the way we draw our boundaries. Mm -hmm. The B word. Yep. Mm -hmm. Boundaries. And the N word, you have to say no to things. I never could say, mm -hmm. like I was, like you just said, uh, Mariah, earlier that you're like a people pleaser. And I feel like I'm also, or, or at least used to be. So I always, I couldn't say no. Just people at work would say, can you do this? Can you do that? Or whatever. And I was always like, yes, sure, sure. I'm going to do it. And now I have to say no, no. And people from therapy have, have told me like, you just have to get used to saying no. And, this, you know, somebody else can do it or I can't help you with it. I still struggle with it because I still have in my head i'm still thinking like but maybe i can do it but maybe i should just say yes and do it like later and <laughs> me too i'm like what if i just try this yeah. time like maybe i can just push myself this time oh, yeah. and yes you do need to you know try to see where your limits are and if anything has grown but it is so hard to know like where the stop gate is because yeah. every day is different yeah Weirdly, so I'm naturally an introvert, which sometimes surprises people, but having had a brain injury and having a good reason to leave a social gathering has been the, <laughs> the biggest blessing for me. Me too. Because, because most of the time at social stuff, like I'm, I have a limit anyway, because I'm introverted and it wears me out and I love my friends, but I can only do so much, you know, especially big gatherings. They just wear on me. And now with a brain injury, it's even worse, but also I can say brain injury, gotta go <laughs> and feel less bad about it. <laughs> so thanks for that. Brain injury. <laughs> oh, yes. That's so true. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for your time today. Honestly, it's such a pleasure to have had the two friends of Making Headway meet the two brain injured friends. And I feel like as soon as this pandemic business is over, I hope our paths cross in person. Yes. So it was yeah, lovely. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Really <laughs> we were thank meant you. to be brain injured friends, all four of us, <laughs> <Yes>. I guess. <laughs> so to our listeners... Uh, if you would like to look up My Brain Injured Friends, they're available on a podcast platform near you, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, you name it, I think they're on it. Again, that's My Brain Injured Friends. They're on Instagram at podcast.mybraininjuredfriends. And they are on pause right now, but look for more from them and definitely download their first season. It, I, I listened to the whole thing, some of the episodes more than once, because it just, it meant a lot to hear your voices as you talk through some of this st stuff together. And the fact that you are friends also helps the way the conversation happens. So thank you for putting your time and your hearts into it. It's, I, I can say personally that it's meant a lot to me, so it probably has meant a lot to others as well. Mm -hmm. so. Thank you so much. 
So this is Mariah signing off with Aaron, the Making Headway podcast. We'll see you all next week. Yay! Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stout Heart Studios. Sun rises across the ocean.